Well, hello and, and greetings. You're listening to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast, and thanks for joining us. We've got a, another great show today. I know our audience is well aware that pharmacists and community and ambulatory care practice settings are playing an increasingly important role in providing or prescribing hormonal contraception. And in several states, pharmacists are permitted to independently prescribe combined hormonal contraceptive pills and patches, as well as progestin-only pills and injections, and in some states, vaginal rings as well. Of course, there are many other options available to men and women that are available through pharmacies in every state, including male and female condoms, spermicidal foams and gels, and emergency contraception. And many women elect to be fitted for a diaphragm or have an IUD placed. And implants are also available. So there's lots and lots of options. But despite the availability of a wide array of contraceptive choices, unplanned pregnancies are still commonplace. Many women, indeed more than half, discontinue their chosen contraceptive method within six months of starting. And, and that's for a variety of reasons, and many do not seek an alternative. To me, this suggests we're not doing a very good job of following up with women to make certain the option that they've initially chosen is the right one for them. After all, the primary reason most women elect to use contraception is that they want to prevent an unplanned pregnancy. And the only way we can achieve that is to ensure that women are persistently and consistently using their chosen form of contraception. And, and so that's why a recently published research letter published in JAMA Internal Medicine caught my eye because it suggests that women often don't persist with a chosen method. So I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today two new contributors from the Lifespan Health System in small but mighty Rhode Island, uh, Dr. Catherine Hart and Dr. Allison Zern. Uh, Dr. Hart is a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident, and Dr. Allison Zern, an ambulatory care pharmacy specialist who practices at the Lifespan Center for Primary Care. And together they wrote a commentary for iFormerX. So, Katie, Allison, welcome to the iFormerX podcast. Thank you so much for having us today and giving us the opportunity to review this article. Yes, thank you for having us. So, Katie, I'm going to start with you. I'm wondering if you can explain why unintended pregnancies are such a big deal. I don't think it's something that we explicitly talk about in most pharmacy curricula. Certainly, it wasn't something I remember learning about in school. But clearly, there are a number of potentially negative consequences for unplanned pregnancies. Yes, unintended pregnancies are indeed a big deal. Around half of all pregnancies are unintended, and unintended pregnancies are associated with multiple negative consequences. Studies have shown that unintended pregnancies are associated with maternal mental health issues, including depression and suicidal ideation. Additionally, unintended pregnancies are associated with a higher risk of adverse physical effects, such as an increased risk of miscarriage and a higher likelihood of having low birth weight infants. These women also often have a delayed onset of prenatal care, which can impact the health of both the mother and the baby. 
In addition to these physical and psychological effects, there are also significant financial costs associated with unintended pregnancies. The annual cost of unintended pregnancies in the United States is at least $5 billion. Additionally, higher rates of unintended pregnancies are seen in people with low incomes, and unintended pregnancies place a significant financial burden on these women and their support systems. Lastly, approximately half of all unintended pregnancies result in abortions, and abortions themselves place the mother at risk for hemorrhage, infection, and even death. The rates of these complications are fairly small, but an even larger concern is the potential psychological impact on the mother due to the moral and political issues associated with abortions themselves. The reason why this is all so relevant to our discussion today is because most unintended pregnancies are a result of either a lack of contraception or inconsistent use of contraceptive methods. So, Allison, I think one of the primary reasons that many states have authorized pharmacists to provide or prescribe hormonal contraception is to reduce the rate of unplanned pregnancies, particularly in areas that are underserved, who don't have women's health clinics, for example, or don't have a local women's health specialist. And even if they have one, these providers often have far more patients than they can manage in their practice. So, offloading some of the work alleviates some of the stress in the system and makes hormonal contraception more accessible and, and convenient. One of the fears has been that patients will not get the same level of routine follow-up as they might otherwise receive in a more traditional setting. And I think that's why talking about papers like this brief report is so important. So the paper was entitled Association Between Patients' Perceptions of the Sexual Acceptability of Contraceptive Methods and continued use over time. And that's a mouthful. That's a long title. The paper appears in the June 2021 issue of JAMA Internal Medicine. And can you give us a, a brief summary of the study design and its findings? So this study was performed to evaluate the sexual acceptability of contraceptive methods and their subsequent rates of non-continuation. So our patient population consisted of women aged 16 to 45 years old who are enrolled in the HER Salt Lake Contraceptive Initiation Cohort Study conducted in Salt Lake County, Utah. The primary endpoint of sexual acceptability was evaluated multiple ways using the six-item Female Sexuality Function Index, the 20-item New Sexual Satisfaction Scale, and a rating scale that ranged from making the patient's sex life a lot worse to a lot better. A safety analysis was also performed that evaluated rates of bleeding, mood changes, and physical changes. This study had a total of over 2,000 participants enrolled. Over 60% of those participants chose either an IUD or an implant as their contraceptive method. After one month, around 53% of patients reported that their sex life improved with a non-significant reduction in their scores on the FSFI6 and NSSS. Those who reported worse sex lives were significantly more likely to discontinue or switch therapy within six months than those who reported unchanged or improved sex lives. In terms of adverse effects, around 46% of participants reported increased bleeding, and participants had, on average, more mood and physical symptoms after initiating therapy. However, these adverse effects were not associated with an increased risk of non-continuation. 
So Katie, as I mentioned, this was a, a brief research report. So the paper didn't provide some of the same level of detail we might expect from a full length research paper. Nonetheless, I'm wondering what you consider to be the strengths, weaknesses, and limitations of, of the paper. A strength of the study was that it used multiple measures of sexual acceptability to assess changes after starting a new contraceptive method. Since the study results only showed a significant difference in one of these rating scales, the potential impact of sexual acceptability on non-continuation may have been overlooked if all three scales were not used as endpoints. Another strength was providing the patient's desired contraceptive methods at no cost. Previous studies indicate that cost is a factor that contributes to both choice of contraceptive method and the reason for discontinuation. Therefore, the study design eliminated this potential confounding factor. The one drawback here is that this is likely not representative of real life because patients often do not have this level of freedom when selecting treatments. In addition to this, there are multiple other limitations associated with the study design. First, the entire study population was from a specific geographic area, and this therefore limits the generalizability of the results to other areas of the world. Second, there was no baseline assessment of the reasons for initiating contraception, and these reasons likely played a role in the future continuation of contraception. Third, the endpoints for FSFI6 and NSSS scores were reported as overall changes, but it would have been more beneficial to see if certain elements of these scores were impacted to a higher degree than others. Lastly, due to the lack of randomization, there was an unequal representation of contraceptive methods with more than half of participants using an IUD or an implant. Since these are long-acting contraceptive methods, this likely also impacted the rates and reasons for discontinuation. Overall, this was a brief research report with limitations to its study design but its results still indicate that patients' sexual experiences play a role in the future continuation of a contraceptive method. So Allison, this paper suggests that continued contraceptive use is influenced by the patient's sexual experience while using that method, but things like vaginal bleeding, mood changes, acne, bloating, and other potential side effects that, that we might ask a patient about were not actually associated with discontinuation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ask patients about these potential adverse effects during follow-up visits with patients, but it seems to me we might not be asking the right question. But asking someone, hey, how's your sex life is probably not the right way to go either. So what do you recommend? What kinds of questions should we be asking during follow-up encounters? And are there any objective data that we should be gathering as part of our follow-up? And how frequently should I be interacting with patients to whom I've prescribed hormonal contraception? Yes, I think these are all important questions for being able to take this study and relate it to our clinical practice. So, the various scales used to measure outcomes in this study are useful resources that we can use to help identify questions to ask patients to assess their sexual function. So some questions that are included in the new sexual satisfaction scale include how satisfied are you with your mood after sexual activity and how satisfied are you with your body sexual functioning. These are just a few examples of the types of questions that may be most beneficial to ask patients when following up with them 
Due to the inherent sensitive and subjective nature of an individual's sexual experiences, it is better to focus on gaining rapport with the patient and having a detailed conversation with them rather than collecting specific objective data. In terms of frequency of these interactions, ideally we should check in with patients soon after they start their new contraceptive method to evaluate their sexual satisfaction as well as any adverse effects that they may be having. Since most patients noticed a change in their sex life after one month in this study, it would be a good idea to follow up with patients about one month after starting their new contraceptive method. Also, since previous studies have shown the highest rates of discontinuation are within the first six months of starting a new contraceptive method, I would recommend interacting with the patient again after about six months. From there, follow-up could be extended to yearly, or it could be sooner if the patient or the provider feels that they need to see the patient with closer follow-up. So Katie Allison, thank you so much for being my guest today on the iFormerX podcast and for authoring a commentary about the study. Improving access to hormonal contraception through community pharmacies is, is certainly important. But let's not forget that the ultimate goal is to prevent unplanned pregnancies. And the goal can be only achieved if the contraceptive method initially selected is continued. It's critically important that we follow up with patients and ask the right questions. Well, tell us what you think. Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features, and you can become a member of iFormerX. It's free for health professionals, so please sign up today. And for those of you who are board-certified ambulatory care pharmacists, this podcast and the commentary will be available for CE and board recertification credit through the American Pharmacists Association's Board Prep and Recertification Program. And you can learn more about the APHA's Board Prep and Recertification Program by clicking on that link that's posted just below the commentary on our website. Lastly, I want to acknowledge and thank Diana Isaacs from the Cleveland Clinic for being a frequent contributor and an enthusiastic supporter of our work. Diana has been a guest on this podcast, written commentaries, and been a peer reviewer. And I know I say this at the end of every podcast, but it's true. We simply wouldn't exist without the voluntary contributions from members of this community of practice. And if you're already a member of iFormerX and want to help us, consider rating this podcast on iTunes or telling a colleague about our website. We don't have a marketing budget and we rely strictly on word of mouth to help us grow. So do me a favor, introduce a resident, student, or colleague to iFormerX. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends. Mm-hmm.